Hey, it's Arlen. So I have an online course that I just started in April 2020 that's called How to Raise Capital for Your Company from Scratch. More than 4,000 students take this course right now. I just, I can't believe that. So more than 4,000 since April have signed up for this course. It is a paid course. You have more than 12 hours of information, like customized videos and audio that I spent a lot of time putting together. You have guest lectures. You have um, case studies and comments so you can communicate with other people. We also have a monthly live Q&A office hour session that happens every single month. Check it out. It's at Arlen was here, A-R-L-A-N was here dot teachable dot com. That's Arlen was here dot teachable dot com. And you can check it out today. There's also a brand new installment plan because I know a lot of you have asked me for that. So for $35 per month, you're in. You're in. Okay? Check it out. Hi everyone, it is Arlen. Man, I feel like I haven't talked to you in a while, but I have been working. I've been working on Backstage, my venture fund, been working on a lot of things, and I have been doing some interviews that are amazing. We are getting those edited and getting those out to you, starting today with Aisha Tyler. Aisha Tyler, I said. (laughs) Aisha Tyler, oh my goodness. I can't believe I even know Aisha Tyler, let alone got to interview her. Um, You you have to know her. She is in everything. She had Talk Soup. She had had an arc, story arc on Friends uh, in in one of its last two seasons. She's been on Criminal Mind. She's been on Archer. uh, All sorts of things. Um, Um... the, the, whose line is it anyway? She's been on everything, okay? And she's a black woman who is just breaking all sorts of boundaries. I was so, so honored when just a couple of years ago she interviewed me at Makers Conference. So if you've ever seen that uh, video that I have that's my speaker reel where she talks about where we're talking on stage, that, that was an out-of-body experience because it was Aisha Tyler saying nice things about me <laughs> in front of people. And so, yeah, I just uh, got to know her through uh, a good friend of ours, Franklin Leonard, introduced us originally a couple of years ago and have just enjoyed our conversations. She was so kind as to have a Zoom conversation with me just a few days ago. Now, I will say this. Unfortunately, some of the sound is not great. Um, Zoom is, is doing the Lord's work. It is holding on tight and doing a lot. And so some days Zoom doesn't have the clearest sound and there certainly are other options for recording a podcast. So I do not begrudge it at all. I appreciate it. And uh, this was the case here. So what I suggest is you definitely listen to this and get into it and, and just pretend that you have just dialed in to listen to a phone conversation that the two of us were having because it is, you know, it's a raw audio file. And uh, especially towards the end, you'll hear the clicking of Aisha's earring. Um, But if you listen to it thinking, I'm listening to two people talk to each other and I'm a fly on the wall, it actually kind of goes away after a while. Um, Anyway, point is the content 
of this interview is smashing. If you've ever wondered anything about friends, if you've ever wondered anything about how, how Aisha feels about what's going on right now with COVID and Black Lives Matter and um, her space in this, in this entertainment industry, because I have been so, so curious about it. I'm so glad I got to ask her. This is the interview for you. She, uh, as I mentioned in the interview, anytime I talk to her, I have to have a, a thesaurus and a dictionary at the ready because her vocabulary to me is <laughs> so refined and I have to find different words to kind of catch up to her. She's amazing, funny as hell, of course. And I, you know, my favorite TV scientist, I guess, right? I'm just thrilled to have you listen to my interview with Aisha Tyler. Can I tell you, uh, we'll, we'll get right into it, you know, just yeah, to time, but can I tell you, I, you know, there's, I'm, I'm always late to the party on these phrases. Uh, I always feel a little bit left behind, but the, you are the very definition of booked and busy. <laughs> like there's never i've known you for i don't know like two or three years now it's been, a, it's been at least two yeah, years a couple maybe a years year, yeah. couple years mm-hmm. right i have never known you to not have like three or four projects going at the same time or be uh, prepping for three to four mm-hmm, projects. Mm-hmm, and is that been that way for the 20 years since you i think that the technical term is a uh, workaholic <laughs> crippling workaholism um but yeah i mean i've been like that for a long for a long while and i don't necessarily know that that's like an, an accomplishment per se i do i do feel like i i'm happiest when i'm kind of overwhelmed by work but i will say that like and i i'm actually curious to hear how you feel about how this year has affected the way that you operate but you know, every, it's been disorienting for everybody. It's been a really disorienting year for me. I think I, I had to kind of came with all this, you know, that the optimistic part of me was like, I'm going to be so effective and I'm going to get so much done. But it's been very, it's been very um, unbalancing, I think. So this year has been really interesting because I have been super busy, but I haven't been as effective as I think I expected to be right. coming into all of this. Do you know what I mean? Well, I don't know if anybody has. I mean, I hope mm-hmm. you're giving yourself a break uh, emotionally. Right I am now. working on that. <laughs> that <Because> is <laughs> nobody has this figured. We never had it figured out, but nobody has this. No, this it's is just, just such a singular else. experience. Like. Yeah singular yeah. for like our, our adult lives like nothing's ever happened like this in our adult lives and i don't think anything's happened like this i mean you know in the last like 100 years and i i mean people keep trying to compare it to things that have happened before but i don't think you can you can't um, yeah, <laughs> yeah so. I mean, but by the same by the same token we have not gone through certain things that are just would be very foreign to us to understand right. as well. Right, 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 right. Made it through. Right. So, but but I mean, individually. Yeah, yeah, I mean, like in so many ways, like human beings, you know, we have like as like as a as a machine, we haven't really changed. You know what I mean? But I I like, I mean, I sound like a, a maniac, but like our, our operating system or our or or our environments changed so much, right? Like. I just think about if this had happened 15 or 20 years ago, how different this experience would be for people. And I think actually it would probably be a diminished experience, but we would probably wouldn't be as panicked because we wouldn't have as much information. You know, we wouldn't, I wouldn't be waking up at four in the morning and then spending like five hours 
just reading <laughs> about all the ways in which the world could end. Um, I just because like, okay, like wear your mask, wash your hands. I, I wouldn't be so deeply alarmed, but I also wouldn't have, we wouldn't be able to continue working either. You know what I mean? I would like, I, I, we've been able to continue like kind of making progress, which I don't think we would have been able to do like 15 or 20 years ago. I don't know. It's really, it's unusual. Yeah. There's certainly a, 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 a give and take there, a sacrifice mm-hmm. there, mm-hmm. all things getting balanced. And I had just learned a phrase that I had taught myself and then I've lost it again, but you know, this, you know, it. I remember the first time I ever talked to you on the phone, I had to, I was like searching for a dictionary because I was like, what you saying? <laughs> you're, <laughs> you're just on this next level uh, with all your the different things you know, you know about, you know, you're that kind of person who knows something about a, a lot of topics, but it's, it's, um, it's, it's the balance that the body has is what I'm trying to get at. It's that. Right. Right. What the most is Yes. Homeostasis. Because there's like this balance that happens that yes, we, we know more, we're inundated with information. And so what that does is makes us more crazy, you mm-hmm. know, it makes us more frightened and makes things happen on reaction, more reactionary, but it also, mm-hmm. Maybe, who knows, maybe we would have lost even more lives if we weren't yes. able to communicate the way we are. I don't we wouldn't know have been able to disseminate information as yes. well. Right? It wouldn't be reaching as many people. And I also think like, look, I think in some ways we probably would, everyone would be following instructions better because we wouldn't have so many different kind of competing instructions coming mm, to us. That's true. But on the other hand, um, it, it just wouldn't be disseminated as wildly, widely. Like people wouldn't, yeah. not as many people would be getting it. I think you're right. I think we would be yeah. losing more lives. Um, it, it's, from, yeah, from a lot well, of information. You, you mentioned earlier that um, you you are busy and busy is not the goal, you know, never mm-hmm. the goal. Mm-hmm. Um, you are, you don't feel as productive as you usually are. Is that what you were saying? I, you know, it's interesting. No, I don't, which I find very frustrating. And, and I don't know if it's that I don't feel as productive as I normally am, or if it's that I felt like this time would be uniquely productive. Like I would be, I would be like extraordinarily prolific during this time. and kind of like everybody else, like, you know, come out of this with like the great American novel and I would have knit, you know, a sweater. And yeah. I would have started raising, you know, our kind of chickens or whatever. I don't know. And, and <laughs> <laughs> mainly what I do is just, you know, do what everybody else does, which is like doom scroll. Um, and you know, just read, read a lot of news in a panic. Yeah. Um, I, I do a lot more. Re- I mean, I've never done as much reading. I'd love to read, but I, I will wake up at like three or four in the morning and be like, okay, I'm just going to read for like an hour. And then it'll be like nine and I'll just be reading for, like, you know, yeah. so are it, you, it just, it's interesting. You're, you're an artist and mm-hmm. I'm married to an artist mm-hmm. and I, on a weekly basis, I have to convince her that she is not being quote unquote lazy, mm. but that she is being, to me, it's like, you know, it's the output is the most important thing. That's, that's an art and in business and everything in between. Um, yeah. It's the output. It's not someone saying, well, you, you didn't work this many hours or you didn't work this particular day. When I see her relaxing or even giving herself a break, it is, I'm thinking she's rejuvenating and she's being creative and it's, you know, that's how I feel about um, self-care in general. But, mm-hmm. but I imagine being, having been around so many musicians my whole life, there is this thing in artists that there's this sort of guilt 
trip you put on yourselves. Is that something that relate that resonates for you that oh, you recognize? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, it, you just, you articulated that so perfectly because I am constantly like my constant kind of like low level model. Like it's like, you're being lazy, you're being lazy. You should be working. And I think that, you know, you were saying you're around, you're around musicians a lot. So like they, they don't have the normal structure to a work day where I work from, you know, nine to five or, you know, eight to six or whatever it is. And then I can like turn off. I think artists both are always kind of trying to experience life, but are always trying to create and just think if they're not creating that they're not being, you know, productive. And, and yes, I mean, that's like, I'm just like, I like, you know, if it's Tuesday afternoon or Saturday morning, I always feel like I should be working. So I'm very, very bad at relaxing. Um, and, and even when I will, even when I choose to relax, um, like and there's an inner voice who's always like, you know, you can relax for an, another 45 minutes and then you need to go do something, which again, it's like probably why I feel like if this isn't, this hasn't been the most productive period because um, like, I don't know. I don't know if you felt this. Um, this was like in maybe May when we had had, we'd been on this lockdown and, and, and it was widely reported that like we were going to come out of it like around May 15th. And I remember um, me and a couple of our, our friends like rented a house in the desert. We all got tested so that we could like kind of shelter in place together and just kind of create a little bit of an artist commune just to get out, out of, you know, our own places. Cause we all felt like we were stuck. And uh, so we, we had this house in the desert and then somebody saw in the news that the lockdown was going to be extended to like July. <laughs> and I just had, I just had the most like Charlie Brown trying to kick the football. Like, what's the point? Yeah. <laughs> like, why am I even trying? Uh, which I rarely have those moments. Um, and you know, there are people in way much, much worse of a situation than I am. So it was very self-indulgent, but it was this kind of like, why are we all pushing so hard when like maybe nothing is ever going to go back to the way that it was. And, and, and it, and it will, I mean, you know, that's, that's the thing or it will not exactly the way that it was, but in some way probably better than it was when we finally get through this really dynamic period. But I, I just remember feeling very like second grade flopping on the bed, like what? Try. <laughs> <laughs> what the boy? My God. <laughs> and I, I just never, I, I'm, I'm typically not, um, I, I, I'm very lucky. I, this is not, I haven't figured anything out. I just was born with a kind of brain chemistry that's typically not fatalistic. And, and uh, I'm not one of those people that's like, you can just choose to be happy. Like I know that some people are just born with a kind of brain chemistry where like working on happiness is a lot more uh, of, of, a, of a challenge than it is for other people. And I just was one of those people born with a lot of dopamine. So it's just interesting because I'm, I'm typically always like, well, we can do it guys. Um, and I was like, I definitely had a little, you know, like, Oh, forget it. Kind of a moment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I mean, that's, I think everybody has gone through it because we're all just experiencing the same trauma from different angles at the right. same time. Right. And so it, 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 I think we're all, anyone who said that they haven't had any kind of moment like that is either really, really truly in a bubble, like truly far mm -hmm. away from this, or they're just lying to themselves or to other people mm -hmm. and I remember mm -hmm. I remember around it was around well it was probably around April because April was a really bad month for my immediate family their 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 emotional well-being because mm -hmm. it was just mm -hmm. you know 
so weird to them, you know, and mm-hmm. I had already, I had not shaken a hand in two and a half years up to that point because I just don't shake hands anymore. And so mm-hmm. I had already mm-hmm. kind of let myself believe, hey, we're probably going to be way into the fall or winter before we even get anywhere close to going outside. Like I had already, right. but I remember having, you were this, ready, you were prepared. I was like mentally, you were prepared. In that, that way, because yeah. I was just like, worst case scenario, that's what I'm going to do because that's what I do. But I remember having these really long conversations with my my brother who's four years younger than me. He's in his 30s. I still think of him as like a teenager. He's a father and all, you know, grown man. But he he did kind of revert to the teenager who used to be, I remember he used to fear for like uh, plagues and like, you know, nuclear bombs. And so he used to have that irrational fear at the time. And he was just like, where, where do we go? What do we even try to do? You know, what, what are we even mm-hmm. trying to do right now? How do we not just completely give up? Mm-hmm. And I said to him, I reminded him, he's four years younger than I am. He always will be. And I said, <laughs> I said, by the time we're truly out of this, even if it does take a year, even if it takes mm-hmm. two years, you will still be younger at that point than I am today. And I am young. Yeah. Right. So it, it, I, that really helped him at the time. It was like, okay, Mm -hmm. so we can't start thinking about this in months and years rather than in weeks and days. Mm -hmm. And then having that sort of understanding kind of helps you control things. It's like if you're claustrophobic, not terribly, but you're, it's a, it's a little bit of an issue Mm -hmm. and you can start Mm -hmm. talking yourself into you know talking yourself down that this is what it's going to be like or talking yourself forward in time yes to when you're not in that moment of panic yeah, um, yeah. which is interesting because because I, I do think that there's another way of looking at all this which is that it's a really dynamic time and that there's no avoiding dynamism right there's no avoiding change and um that that you know in so much as there have been a lot of really negative things that have come out of this really singular occurrence, there have been some really positive ones. And, you know, specifically, you know, if you're a person of color, you know, my mother was uh, an, an organizer and an activist and she was in SNCC and, you know, she was a freedom writer. You know, I'm living through a version of what she lived through that I think is going to be as or more effective in changing the way that this culture operates than what she experienced. And that probably, we needed this, perfect storm of nobody working and having the time and the energy to be able to organize and march and to focus on social justice issues in a way that they probably wouldn't have if everybody was still just going to work every day. Mm. And I, I mean, it's been interestingly, um, both disappointing and uplifting this, you know, this movement, this moment in time, you know, it's, it's, I had a girlfriend who is white write me after George Floyd and she was like, well, I know this stuff doesn't upset you, but like, I'm really upset. And I was like, it's not that it doesn't upset me. It's just that it happens so frequently that I'm not shocked by it. Like, Mm. don't, don't get my lack of reaction. Don't take it to me that I don't care. It's just that I'm tired. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm tired of being upset. I'm tired of being afraid. I'm tired of being angry. But for a lot of people for whom these occurrences felt both shocking and somehow like infrequent, now that they really had, a, uh, an, uh, you know, the time to pay attention to everything, you know, there's a sea change. And, and you know, when, when people write this up in the history books, like that'll be a part of how we digest this moment was that maybe we couldn't have had one without the other, which is just, you know, I mean, 
wild to consider. I mean, no one want, no one wanted, no one could have wanted right. you know, this pandemic, yeah. but I think it also just reminds us how human we are and how frail we are. And it's just, it's just such a singular time in history. I mean, there's nothing, there's really nothing to compare to. There's not. Yeah. And I, I have to say again, I, 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 I um, may upset some people who don't like to, to anyway i'll just say i i it, it does there feels like there it feels like there is a that you have been through trauma it feels oh, like it's absolutely yeah yeah it feels like mm-hmm. that you, you're healing from that and we're all here healing from that um i wonder if you would indulge me a little bit i will <laughs> a couple of things i want to talk about because a this is your first million so we like to talk about how people kind of got to where they are and and Mm -hmm. all that how they relate to money and however they feel comfortable but b mainly i am just uh before i met you i was just another uh person who watched television for my whole life and you were you have been on so many different shows and you have been in so many different roles and kind of occupied different spaces. And I think, I know that that, that in itself is incredibly underrated and underreported. And I just want to know a little bit about how it felt from your side of things. You know, I'll, I'll certainly would have already done an, an intro to give some of your credits, but how wh- let's talk about that i don't know anyone else besides maybe a whoopi goldberg or someone of that type who has had such a very who's a black woman who's had such a varied uh um time in in our modern television and movies and video games oh. and talk shows <laughs> <laughs> so so i guess we can start with like friends friends was probably the first time and i know this is like 20 years of you having to talk about this so you just stop me if you don't like to but it was the first time i think i think i saw you first first at um talk soup mm-hmm. i think that's mm-hmm. when i yeah that was probably my big that was like my first like you know like kind of real break yeah um, and that would have been I, early 20s yeah that was uh it was my early 20s that was 2001 2002 um and i mean it's, it's like lovely to be mentioned in the same breath as with goldberg because I, I one thing i really have always admired about her um other than her like general iconography is that she uh like she was able to do things that weren't really you know typically designated for uh, you know a black woman like i you know i remember reading at one point that like three or four or four or five of her biggest hit movies were all roles that were written for white men and she was able to con- turn them into these like you know star making terms um yeah i love that which, you know really really spoke to just her you know like lack of concern for you know how other people saw her or how she was perceived or how she thought people wanted where she thought people wanted to put her you know she was always kind of breaking those those boxes but um yeah i i, I started out as a stand up I, I went i was going to go to law school i went to dartmouth and i was i was an undergraduate degree in government and i wanted to be an attorney and then I got out of school and I just was working in an office and I was super not loving working in an office. <laughs> and I, I was very unusual to, I had like a dream job because I had, had minored in, in environmental, uh, environmental studies and I wanted to be, I wanted to work in like the not-for-profit sector. And so I was, I was, I had like a dream job. I was working for a not-for-profit that 
did urban land conservation, specifically focused on underserved communities. So they were buying up like unused land in, in, in cities and turning them into parkland and greenland in, in areas that didn't have access to green space. I was like, just could not have been closer to like my sweet spot. Um, and I just really, I was miserable. And I, I remember how it, I was like, what, it's so strange to have like landed exactly the most ideal position for me and to really hate going to work every day. And then I, I started doing stand-up just because I, it was something I could do. You know, you didn't need to know anybody or have an agent or a band. You could just go do stand-up. And I thought, I'll just try it and see if I like it. And I loved it. And so I was doing stand-up for a while in San Francisco. And then I moved to L.A. and um, was, do, like, was just doing these little one-off kind of appearances on TV shows, like, you know, Politics Incorrect and stuff like that. And um, auditioned for and, and got talked to. And that was really, that was my break. So if I think if, if people, it wasn't the big break, the big break was friends, but the first break was really tough too. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. And before we talk about friends, because again, that, that was a, that was a role I believe that, that did not have a designation or maybe was assumed would be a white woman or something to that effect. Mm -hmm. But before we talk about that, you said something that I think I want to make sure that the audience, <clears throat> pardon me, picks up on, which is, you started doing stand-up, two things. You, you kind of followed your arrow, as the Casey Musgrave says, right? You, you, you didn't just stay there where a lot of people would have stayed where they thought they were supposed to be and then, you know, what happens next? And mm -hmm. the second thing is you said you started st stand-up because you did not need an agent, you did not need a band, it was a solo sport. It was mm -hmm. win or lose at your, you know, bomb or not at your own, uh, yeah. you know, you had that control. How important was that for you? What, like, why was that so attractive to you? I, I, you know, I probably have always been what they used to call when I was in college a GDI or a goddamn independent. What is it? Say it again. Uh, a, god, a goddamn independent. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> And I think that came from having like really, you know, like unusual parents. They were these kind of, you know, they were like black power activists and, you know, they were into meditation and they moved out to California and, you know, had kids and you know, we, they raised us vegetarian and I lived in a ashram for a while. So I was always like an outsider my whole life. And I remember as a kid, um, I don't know that I ever resented it, but you know, even your kids, you want to fit in, they want to be like other kids. And then what you realize, and I always say this to parents when they talk to me about their kids, that like weird, clear, you know, strange kids or outsider kids make iconoclastic adults. You know what I mean? Like the fact that I was always on the outside slowly meant that I didn't ever care about being on the inside or conforming. And it really became like a superpower when I got older. So I really think probably stand-up was, was just like it was, like you said, I, it, was a, it was a solo sport and, and it, I don't need a singular engine. And so I, I could just do what I wanted to do. And like you said, the failures were mine, but the successes were mine too, which was really appealing to me. Um, and I just didn't need to rely on anybody. And I'm sure that came from never being able to rely on anybody other than myself when I was a kid. Um, and I, oh. I, I always find it really remarkable, like all the kids that were super popular and I'm sure people listening, there are people out there who were very popular and doing fine, but most of the kids that I knew that were like really effortlessly popular as a kid really suffered, really struggled as adults because they had never really had to, to try to do mm -hmm. anything. You know, they were kind of super good looking and really popular, you know, didn't need good grades because everybody liked them, didn't really need to try. And then when they got out in the real world and they really had to strive, they just didn't have the engine for that. And, 
I just think being like a weird kid who whose parents sent her to school with like, you know, big Newtons and tofu sandwiches. I just, <laughs> I just That's their superpower. Yeah. My superpower, I was really comfortable doing it my own way, you know? And, yeah. uh, and also, you know, because I was kind of an outsider, I was a good observer. And I, I, I you know, I'm sure that helped me with being a stand-up because so much of stand-up is, is, is observation and commentary and kind of mm-hmm. taking things apart from the outside. So, yeah. yeah. And it's funny because I wasn't one of those kids who's like, you know, was gripping their Red Fox album or their Richard Pryor album, you know, tightly. I, I really fell into comedy, like didn't really understand it as an art form until I was, you know, in my late teens, early 20s. Mm-hmm. Um, but just loved how personal it was and, and how... Um, you know, also like for someone who got who got left out of a lot of stuff when I was younger, you you got to be on top. You know, you got to be the person telling everybody else how you saw the world, which I really love. Yeah, you had the last laugh. You had the last laugh, but a lot of comedy is also being self-deprecating, making fun of yourself, sure. and not being afraid of of having people laugh at you and with you. Like you know, being being fearless in that way as well. So yeah. yeah. So maybe it's more like you had the last word. Maybe the last, the last word. word. I think the last word. Yeah. So then, um, okay. Let's let's go ahead and talk about friends because I I'm I'm just gonna I'm just gonna be you know that that's such a it's such an easy question to ask you, but maybe we can dive into something that you haven't talked about, right? So you yeah. first of all, friends is already on the air for years by the time this happens. So you mm-hmm. get what was that like get, even getting the call like they want you to audition or they want to bring you in without auditioning. What was that like? I definitely auditioned. And I think the thing I remember most, I think the one thing I was always very good at was like not getting too attached to auditions. You know, it can, they can be pretty soul crushing experiences, but because again, because I'd always been kind of like this weird outsider kid, I just pretty much figured I was never going to get anything, which was fine. I could kind of go in and just enjoy the experience without really being too attached to the outcome. But I do remember that when I went into audition for friends, I had been living in LA for several years and I was, I was a full-time stand-up by that point. And so, you know, the life of a stand-up is around until three or four in the morning and then you sleep until like noon. And then, you know, you have like cereal for lunch and <laughs> watch TV and then go back and do comedy again. And so I watched nice. friends every day. I, I, it was getting, it was getting double pumped, you know, at five and five thirty every day. So by the time I auditioned for friends, I had seen probably every episode of it. And so I knew, I just remember going in, like, I'm, I'm probably not going to get this job, but I do know how to tell a friend's joke. I know how they tell a joke on this show. Mm. The sitcom is its own kind of math, you know, sitcom acting. It's its own kind of way of telling jokes. And then within a show, each show has its own style. So I just remember thinking, like, I saw the jokes on the page, and I knew how they needed to be told and how they needed to be delivered. Um, and then I went in, and I saw much more famous people than me I thought, like who are reading for the same role. I remember, and I remember thinking very vividly, I wasn't going to get it. I was like, oh, I know. They got some famous people up in here. Um, mm-hmm. I won't name any names, but, uh, but yeah, some people who are much more well-known at the time, like really much more prominent names. And I thought, oh, God, I'm just going to go in here and like, do my best work. Um, and also, it wasn't written for uh, an African-American, uh, you know, as an African-American character. So... I don't know that I felt one way or the other about that other than like, I could have thought, well, I have nothing to lose. I'm just going to go yeah. and do my thing. They didn't write yeah. her black. They didn't write her, you know? Um, but I do remember when I, and I remember feeling very good about the audition. And I think I ended up doing a chemistry read with David Schwimmer and that went really well. Uh, and I just, I, I definitely didn't think I was ever going to get it, but I just remember thinking I had done a good audition. 
Um, and then I was driving my car through LA. I remember I was actually driving on sixth street, which is like kind of midtown towards, I was going towards, uh, towards Beverly Hills. Uh, and it's a residential street and it was trash day. And I remember that because when I heard that I got it, I, I almost like ran into a big pile of garbage cans. <laughs> <laughs> like I pulled over, I think I stopped right before I like knocked over, yeah. you know, some garbage cans. So they called you, um, your, your people called you and said, mm-hmm. you, you got it. You got, you got it. it. Yeah. Yeah. My manager did. And it was really thrilling. And at the time, I think I didn't know how many episodes it was going to be. I, I think I was thinking it was going to be like maybe three or four and ended up being nine, which was Oof. also like a big deal. Yeah. Across, like, across think, two seasons too. I mean, yeah, across two seasons. It, it was I just impossible. think it went well. So they kept me. Yeah. It yeah, was, was impossible was to miss you during that time. It would be impossible to miss you then. And to be on a show that gets rerun so mm-hmm. i mean there's not a moment of any day that this show is not playing and mm-hmm. your odds of being on one of the reruns is whatever i'm sure it can be worked out mm-hmm. so the experience it's it's uh, i guess i'm asking two different questions the experience itself i remember i asked you about this originally because um, i'm a dork so i did ask you the first time i had a chance to and i remember you said something about how like you know, this was a well-oiled machine. Of course, they'd been around, but they were just super friendly to you as well. Mm-hmm. Is that mm-hmm. is that how you remember it? They were, and they really made a point of being kind. And I don't know if I read it at the time or right after that. Um, they had, there had, you know, this was at this point. I was in our season nine, season ten. At that point, they had had a, a, a fair number of very prominent guest stars, you know, Tom Selleck and Reese Witherspoon and Brad Pitt. Um, and uh, oh God, Bruce Willis, like this big name. And there was this, you know, whether it was apocryphal or not, there was this like story going around that like people really cracked up on that show. Like they really, they would come on and they'd pop down <laughs> because it, it was a well little machine and it was the number one show on TV. And this was the best cast you know, in history of sitcom acting, they were all so good and so good with each other that people would get really intimidated when they would come on the show and they would kind of fall apart. They'd melt, they'd melt down. So, and I might be, I might be conflating all of this stuff, but what I remember was that they made a real point of saying, like, if you need anything, please reach out, please ask us. If we want you to enjoy yourself here, we want you to feel good. We want you to feel Mm -hmm. safe. Uh, And that they all made a real kind of individual pointed effort to make me feel like really, really welcome there, which was a big deal because I was terrified. You know, I mean, it was the number one show on TV and I just didn't want to, I just didn't like coming and shit the bed. So uh, the fact that I felt like um, they were just like super supportive and had nothing to lose. And, you know, you could, you could imagine a version of a show like this where they kind of close ranks, you know, and you're left to founder, but they really, they made such a, a big deal of making me feel okay while I was there, mm-hmm. which, which made a real difference because you can't be funny if you're, you know, if you're just fearful. So, uh, yeah, yeah, they were really, they were really kind. I mean, your, your success on the show would be partially their success because they, they would obviously want you to be comfortable mm-hmm. so that everybody could shine. And I couldn't take anything away from those people. Do you know what I mean? Like they, 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 <laughs> well, there was no need to be threatened. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Right, um, right. I exactly. think like you said, they knew the high tide raised all boats. Like if I look good, they look good. And, yeah. and they, you know, they, it was really important for them to show do well. And didn't Matthew Perry say something to you right as you were walking out for your first line? Yeah, it was my, it was, it was, it was, 
it was it was at the end of that episode, the end of my first episode. Okay. So yeah, you know, we shot those shows in front of a live audience, and um, they were pretty long evenings. Um, the show was like it was very well run, but you know it was also very meticulous. So if the jokes didn't fly, they would stop down. They would write the joke. We'd do the scene again. So it was at the end of my first episode. And then they did a curtain call similar to like the end of the play. And they named, I think they named the like guest cast first and then them was like, they kind of brought up the rear and I was standing next to Matthew Perry and he just leaned in and said, get ready for your life to change. Right before I walked out and took my little bow and, mm-hmm. uh, and it did, I mean, it really did, you know, it really did change my life. It was, it was a great experience. It was a real confidence booster. It was, I mean, I, I, had a, I had a little show before that, which was Talk Speak, that, you know, on a good week got a million or a million and a half viewers, you know, which mm-hmm. it, it was, was substantial. But, you know, then I went on to a show that got like, you know, 25 million viewers domestically. It's probably 100 million viewers internationally. You know, it's just yeah. really, it was, it was a, big, a big dynamic shift. Um, yeah. But again, it was just this, it was just this, these gestures of kindness that they all took the time to make and they didn't really need to do it. You know, it was just a sweet, it was a sweet moment. And they were all very, 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 uh, very kind to me throughout my whole experience. So. That's fantastic. And, and, yeah. and that's your first million. I just heard it. The first time you had were in front of a million people was talk soup. Exactly. That was when my you, first day. Not my first million dollars for sure, but it wasn't my first Yeah, million. but the first time you're in front <laughs> of a million people. Yeah, we talk exactly. about that as well. Exactly. So, so then do you, do, are you able to then at this point test the waters by, after it airs, do you walk out around and you notice people noticing you or, or do you blend in sometimes? I really do not like that whole thing. And I don't know that I've ever measured my success by how many Mm -hmm. people recognize me in public. I I, I really prefer not. I mean, you know, I'm sure people are rolling their eyes like, oh, well, you know, easy for you to say, but I, I, that's not how I measure success. And I don't think I ever really wanted that, that aspect of the job. I, what I do remember is that shortly after the show started airing, maybe between season nine and season 10, I did the Today Show. So I went to New York and I kind of, you know, got to Rockefeller Center and went in the little side door of the building with people seen MC Studios. Mm-hmm. And it was the first time that there were like people waiting there to like ask for an autograph, which is very flattering. I'm never, I'm, I, you know, always try, I always try to be as gracious as I can about that stuff. But uh, it, that was, I mean, I could see that that was different, you know, yeah. but I wasn't like, oh, me? I remember the... Street, like in, in I'm like, <laughs> yeah, you, and you are, you're super down to earth, but it's, exa- you, you're formidable, you know? And, and so, um, and it's just, you know, you've been in all of these shows. So I just can't imagine you can go to a grocery store and not have at least somebody come up to you. And, and it's, it and is, the, it is the element of surprise, Arlen. And I, this is one of my favorite stories. I'm in, I'm in a supermarket in rural Maryland. Um, shopping with some family members and this woman comes up she runs up to me and she's got this look on her face just like <gasps> you know like it's you she's just like just the facial yeah. expression is that and then she just looks at me and you can see in her head she thinks it can't possibly be her and then she just shakes her head and like walks up and just <laughs> never said anything <laughs> She had the whole conversation by herself. She had a whole conversation (laughs) with herself. And I think that I get away with it because I just don't present as, as, you know, like what a quote unquote a celebrity. And so most people, you could, you pretty much can get in and out before anybody really realizes. Well, okay. I, I, I accept that. And I respect that. I will say though, when you came down and did 
you just so gracious and in, in interviewing me for a maker's event a uh, mm-hmm. year and a half ago or so. And when you came, when you walked into a room full of people who are celebrities and, so, and worked with celebrities, I could see the C sort of part. She's here. She's oh. here. She's here. I can really see it. And I think that's, it's probably because you, it is probably a mystery to some, you're anomaly to some people and it's sort of like, a little bit untouchable, but not for any reason that you're putting off. It's just that you've just been such a part of people's lives for so long. You, you remember uh, George Clooney, how he talks about it's a, it's a little different to be in someone's living room than to be at the, at the mm. movies for everything. That is true. Yeah. So he that says he, he gets a lot of people who talk to him about Roseanne and about facts of life before they'll talk about uh, any of his film. Michael Crichton, you know, <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. Or whatever because called. there was this, this familiarity, right? This intimacy, yeah. and yeah. and it's a repeated intimacy. I mean, that show still, you know, you said it airs all over the world all the time. And I yeah. don't just have people, you know, our age that watched it when they were in their twenties. I have, you know, teenage girls and boys that watch it now. They're like, yep. you know, ten and twelve who love it. So. Um, and they've seen and they've seen the whole run of the show many, many times. Many times. So I've seen it too. Yeah, there's just really kind of, you know, strange familiarity yeah. that they have. And then you you go on and you do I, I stopped counting on IMDB, um, just because it's just so many but you do uh Archer, you do voice acting work, you do uh so you do cartoons and animated series, mm-hmm. you do video games, mm-hmm. you do uh, TV shows out the wazoo. You end up being on the talk, which is a, another mm-hmm. high-profile gig, and then Criminal Minds. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I and I hate to kind of fast forward through all of that, but I do want to be mindful of your time. But do you? Does it go by in a blur, or do you feel every single gig, or how does that feel? I think I feel every single gig, and I think it's because. Um, and you were talking about the fact that I do lots of different things. I think it's because I do so many different things that I feel them all because I'm always kind of looking for an opportunity to grow. So, you know, for example, Archer, um, which is a show that I never thought was going to get on the air. I remember very vividly taking that job, taking the pilot for that show and thinking, well, I'll just get to go meet the Frisky Dingo and the Sea Lab 2020 guys. The show's never going to get picked up. It'll be great for these guys to make these other shows that I love. And, you know, now it's in season 11, and um, I'm so proud of it because I've been so passionate about it for so long. Um, and I don't take anything for granted. And I, and I, I think, you know, I, it, it, versus being in a situation where you're just kind of going job to job and, like, thinking about how you're going to pay the bills, I really try to think about how things are going to advance my own creative goals and how I'm going to grow mm-hmm. from them. And then with Criminal Minds, that was another show that I was only supposed to do six episodes of because wow. uh, AJ Cook was out having a baby. And so I just was there to like kind of be like a, a pitch hitter for her while she was out. And it was just such a good fit um, that they asked me to stay there and I did five seasons. <laughs> but, you know, e- even then, like that was the show where I got my director's guild, you know, card and I you know directed my first episode of tv so I'm always trying to look at every experience as an opportunity to grow as an artist and to develop a new skill set and you know even if the skill set is just a different way of working with people or a different way of perceiving my own abilities yeah so yeah I, I do I definitely do feel them all you know I mean I, I was I'd hate to be on cruise control and I I, I think I you know and in entertainment you don't really you don't have the power of yes you know what I mean I think 
people will want to say, well, how did you pick that role? And you're like, well, they offered it to me. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't get to go around and kind of cherry pick, you know, the stuff I do. It's very rare. You know, very few actors get to do that. Um, the power you do have is to turn things down. Um, and so you kind of end up curating your path, your path based on what you, 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 you know, you pair away and what's left. Um, and so in that way, yes, I feel everything because I think about every opportunity. It's like, does this, does this advance my own creative goals and can I learn and can I grow here? And I think also as a black woman, I really try to pick roles that um, dimensionalize women of color or show a younger version of me. And then she doesn't be younger black woman. She could be a younger woman of color or a younger, you know, LGBTQIA community, you know, the part of the queer community. Like I want them to be able to see someone doing something different. Mm-hmm. And that this is that they feel they have someone that represents them in a certain way or shows them how they can be represented. That's really important to me. And I can't always do it perfectly. Like, and I, I know I don't, I'm sure I don't get it right all the time. But um, when I was a little kid and I was a weird little kid and I liked sci-fi and I loved video games and I hung out at the library all weekend, you know, and people would go, you're weird. I didn't really have that many women like me that I could point to. So it is important to me to kind of create a space for younger women to feel like there's some kind of exemplar out there for them. Uh, and I'm not, like I said, I'm not always going to get it right, but, but that, that is something that I think about. Yeah. I think it's happening even, even like I started off by saying it's sort of under, under appreciated, underreported. And um, it, it, I think it's sort of like, you probably have so many people who, feel better about themselves because you are you sort of just exist and there's no explanation of why this woman is playing charlie on friends and why this woman is doing this and that and the other right you play in this game that is very much so or on this field that is very much so why shouldn't i be here and i think that is incredibly powerful and just as powerful if not more maybe sometimes than it just being a fist in the air and it's it's very specific so i just want i mean i think like all all of those things serve a purpose but like i think that there's this soft god this is a terrible phrase and it's actually kind of like a, a bush like a bush one era kind of like vaguely racist phrase where it's just like the soft racism of low expectations yeah. um but which they use to like they, they then use to like completely like fuck public schools out of all the funding but um <laughs> but i do think that like all of those different things serve a purpose but one of the one one thing that's really important to me is like like just just the middle of the road uh, representation of seeing a black woman who's a scientist or seeing a black yeah. woman who's a, a you know a, a profiler or seeing a black woman who's an this and that not being remarkable like it should it shouldn't be remarkable it should feel remarkable because it's delightful but it shouldn't be remarkable like there's only one mm-hmm. you know what i mean and i think um years ago someone said to me um I think it was like I I played like I played an FBI I play I play a, a CIA analyst on 24 and I played a, um, a DNA analyst on uh, CSI and and, and then I played a paleontologist. Someone yeah. said to me, "Are you getting tired of being typecast as a scientist?" And I said, "Are you asking a black woman if she's getting sick of being typecast as smart?" Yeah, I think that's <laughs> like a, I want. That's yeah, the coolest like, question though. It's actually it was, a really it was, cool it was lovely, but yeah, like I want it to just be. 
I just want it to be casual. I, yeah. you know, I want it, I want it to not end up being like a special, a very special episode of, you know, yeah. whatever it is. <laughs> Can you imagine <laughs> if they made it normal. like that, you know? Yeah. Or, you know? Like yeah. slow motion, Joey turning around, like, it, and then he had the talk. That one black yeah. alien paladist, she loves them dinosaurs. Oh my yeah. God. Well, um, I just, too- I want it to just be casually, you know, casually, you know, everywhere you yeah yeah you and everywhere to to wrap things up i definitely want to let people know if you know if there's anything that you're working on either that's already out that you want people to check out like maybe even your your film your short your film that you did you know or anything you're working on that we can check you out absolutely um so this has been like i said it's been such an unusual year for everyone for the whole planet uh i have done some things in in quarantine that have been really fun um, we just finished up season seven of Who Blind Is It Anyway, but it's always running in a year. And so if people want to watch me on a, a, an improv, probably the seminal improv show of yes. our time. Yeah, with yes. three Amazing. of the most extraordinary improvers in the world. Um, Wayne, Brady, Colin, uh, Mockery, and Ryan Styles. So it still runs on CW. Um, season 11 of Archer is coming out this fall. Uh, and it's really I'm really excited about that. Um, I have a new show coming out on Amazon. So there's a show on Amazon called The Boys, which is based on a graphic novel series. And it's kind of an anti-superhero, superhero show. Mm. Uh, And I am doing an after show called Inside The Boys, which is very much like a talking dead kind of um, digest about that show. But the show is very much about um, misogyny and systemic racism and, you know, kind of the, 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 the dark side of capitalism and in, in, in Western culture. And it's really smart and it's really cool. So this after show is very thinky. It's a very thinky after show. It's really fun. So that's called, it's called prime rewind inside the boys. That's also going to, that's going to launch when the boys launches fall. And then um, during, during quarantine, I, I did a little, a little short, like a little web series project with um, some friends, Stephen Amell, who is, is Arrow on, on Arrow. Uh, it's called Speech and Debate, and it's um, just about uh, two high school debate coaches who are absolutely terrible people <laughs> and <laughs> trying to destroy each other. It's really funny. So you can find that on our IGTV on, on Instagram. Nice. And then I, I directed, I directed, um, I just directed a music video for this really brilliant um, young artist called Mink. Um, I've done three music videos for her, so it's uh, M-I-N-K-E. So the latest video we just did is called Elsewhere, so that just went up a little while ago. And, uh, and then I, I, I'm directing, so I just directed, I've been directing a lot of TV, so I just directed an episode of Roswell in during season two, so people can check that out on on The Roswell, I think, Roswell, cut out a little Mexico. bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Roswell, New Mexico, so that, that's what yeah. I'm doing. Because you have so your, been, you're in the Directors Guild now, right? I am, I am. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, a, a card-holding Directors Guild member, and I'm getting ready. To, my my movie, actually, my first movie, Access, is available now. I'm like Amazon, Voodoo, Hulu, Crackle, Peacock. Um, and uh, it's a very strange little fever dream of a movie about a drug addict trying to turn his life around. It mm-hmm. takes place all in one afternoon driving to LA. So you can see that. And um, I'm really proud of that movie because we made it for $200,000 in seven days. Yeah. This is very aggressive for a feature. And the score is was also this one band called Silverstone Pickups, which are a really great independent LA band. Said that um, name again, just in case it Sil- didn't Silver Sun. They're called they're called Silver Sun Pickups. Oh, Silver Sun Pickups. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So I've always wanted to score a film with all of the music from just one band, and and they were li- like lovely enough to give me yeah. 
for their entire yeah. catalog. So it's a really beautiful, dreamlike, strange um, kind of fever vision of a film about a guy, you know, who's who was, was an addict and really ruined everything and was trying to pick up all pieces of his life. Um, Did you use like a RAID camera or something? We used the Area Alexa, which is a very small digital camera. It's got a very small body, um, but really, really high licensing. It shoots beautifully with very little lighting. Um, and it just beautiful pictures, but also we were, we were in a car, the whole movie was shot inside a car. So it was great to have this tiny little camera that really gave you a big, big picture, big, big, beautiful, uh, beautiful images. Uh, and I, I mean, everything that could go wrong went wrong in that movie, but it was one of the best experiences of my life. So <laughs> I think for people to listen to you and know a lot about you and, and, you know, everything that you've done with your life. And I think it's, I think in, the, in those ways we, we are we're connected because I think, um, you know, you're indomitable, right? Like, a, like, a, you know, there's, there's vision and there's, and there's, you know, there's industry and there's all the things you need to be successful, but like the main thing you need to do is be, is just to be able to be persistent through failure and realize that failure is an indicative of ability. And, you know, um, and I always say that, you know, success isn't the absence of failure, it's persistence through failure. You know, it's that you keep getting up and you keep learning. And I mean, I don't know anybody more badass than you. So, well, <laughs> I mean, I love, I just Thank love you. your story. I love telling people your story. You know, I just, <laughs> You know, I, when people always go, like, what's your secret? I'm like, I, I, I just didn't quit. <laughs> yeah, right on. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, you'll you take one, you get a hundred no's, just take one yes, you know? Yep, that's right, that's right. I even talk about that in the in the book about Lady Gaga got, a, got some crap for saying that a lot when she was doing mm-hmm. uh, A Star is Born. But isn't it true? Mm-hmm. Isn't it so it's true? It's <laughs> true. It's the only thing that's true. The only reason that that person is at the finish line and you're still here is because they didn't stop running. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, everybody only, everybody can only tolerate the discouragement that they can tolerate. But the people that continue to grow are the people who could tolerate a lot of discouragement and realize that that's not, that doesn't define them because the world is naturally discouraging. <laughs> um, and, you know, visionary people all seem insane until they are successful. The other story I really love is, is Lin-Manuel Miranda running around trying to write Hamilton. Can you imagine? I remember when Hamilton came out and my friends were like, oh, there's this hip hop musical about Alexander Hamilton. I was like, that is the stupidest shit <laughs> I've ever heard in my life. A musical, a hip hop musical about Alexander Hamilton. You are out of your mind. And wow. then you see it and it's so extraordinary. But imagine all the time he was trying to write it and everybody telling him he was out of his mind. Yep. And you have to not just be dedicated to an idea, but you have to be dedicated to its excellence, right? You have to really push past the point of ridiculousness yeah. <laughs> into, you know, into, you know, all the times that people told you what you were going to do was never going to happen. And you're like, well, you know, I'll, see you, I'll see you in a year. Yeah. I'll see you back in a year. Hmm. Or, or maybe I won't, you know. Or maybe, or maybe. There's a lot of people yeah, saying that. <laughs> I've noticed that a lot of people who are naysayers who say that I can't do something or shouldn't do something or that's too whatever, they've peaked. Yeah, they have to. They're they're there. So it's. I mean, I hate to be. I'm not trying to throw shade. I'm not trying to be petty. It's actually true. The more people who have time to say what you can't do, it's usually because they have reached their abilities. You know, the the ends of their abilities, and maybe they know it, maybe they don't. But it's certainly coming out in, in a way because I say you, you help or you get out the way. There's two options. One hundred percent. Two options. One hundred percent. And yeah, and if you can't help, then really, absolutely step aside. Yes. 
step yes. aside. But, you know, no one ever did anything great by, you know, trying to run it up the middle. <laughs> you know right. what I mean? Like, right. Greatness requires, uh, you know, a bit of kind of, you know, a bit of am- ambition and madness, you know, yeah. to do something really extraordinary. Yeah. I think that's a perfect place to, to end <laughs> this part of the conversation. We'll certainly have to do a part two one day. And uh, thank you so much for everything. And, and I love that your list of things that you're working on right now is like seven deep. <laughs> like it's just, and then <laughs> it's just extraordinary. It's extraordinary. <laughs> I mean, I just don't want to, I'm like that. I'm still that little nerdy kid with a pilot box at the library. I just feel like you might as well do everything you think you can do and see how it goes. Yeah. Yeah. The worst thing that's going to happen is, you know, you're going to be in the same place you were when you started, but yeah, it's better than not doing anything, you know? That's right. So, well, thank you so yeah. much for your time. It's so today. good to see your face. It's Yay. great to see you too. You. It is, uh, man, we're, <laughs> we're in it for the long haul. It's going to be are. a while, but we're here and we're going to make it through this. And um, please vote and, and please um, oh, vote please. Uh, out Trump if you, if you don't mind. That'd be great. If, you, if, 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 you would, if you would be so kind, that's yeah. this absolute clown who is ruining uh, uh, American exceptionalism and destroying our position on the world stage, I would be much appreciated. Yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Also, for all those capitalists out there, I will remind you that uh, the stock market has traditionally done uh, a minimum of five points better under a Democratic president than under a Republican president. So stop telling yourself the story that a Republican president is better for business than not. Uh, Democratic presidents have always had stronger stock markets, and that's, I'll leave you with that. Very important. I love this information. Very important information. Lots of yeah. capitalists listening. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much. My pleasure. This episode of Your First Million is brought to you by Purple dot com slash Arlen, A-R-L-A-N, purple.com slash Arlen. That's where you can go and check out all of Purple's, what do you say, accoutrement, I think is how you say it. Yes, maybe. Fancy, fancy. Mattresses, sheets, covers, all sorts of things, masks, uh, cushions, all those things that you need to make you feel more comfortable. And they do it well. And they do it in conjunction with this podcast. So purple.com slash Arlen, you'll get a discount if you spend $1,500 or more. But go use that Go use that link even if you're not going to spend that much. Check it out. There will always be specials. And that's your hookup. That's your hookup link. Purple.com slash Arlen. Purple.com slash A-R-L-A-N.